This podcast may contain explicit language, which is distinct from shall, and in point of fact, as to this specific episode you're about to hear, actually does not contain explicit language. It's Monday, August 8th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There is some toilet talk in the news. I don't mean potty talk. I don't mean bathroom humor. I mean a legitimate news story that would force me to talk about toilets. You know what it is, and yet I am reluctant to do so. I'll explain why. It is newsworthy, but not as newsworthy or so newsworthy as other things that aren't being covered in the news. It's just that this confluence of the presidency and a toilet is hard to get away from. So what makes something newsworthy? Let's back up and review. Usually it's the big things. War, murder, the presidency. These are newsworthy things. When you think about it, not all of them, not all all of the presidency, not everything the president does. Joe Biden's been out of commission for eight, nine, 10 days. We saw him a little bit talk about the strike on Zarahiri, but mostly he's been out of the news and that's been fine. We haven't had the huge need to cover everything he does. War, yes, the war in Ukraine, that gets a lot of coverage, less than before. The war in the Tigray region of Ethiopia, yeah, one of the other big wars, no coverage at all. And murder, well, there were 20,500 murders in 2020. We didn't cover all of them. Here in New York City, according to the stats, we had a very good week, actually, when it comes to murder. Only seven people murdered, which is really good. Uh, it's much better than last year, where over 30 people were murdered in this week. But only one murder really got a lot of coverage. A vigil tonight in Brooklyn for the McDonald's worker shot and killed over cold French fries. And the reason that got coverage is exactly that. It's the big things combined with the very little things, the picayune things, the relatable things. There's the sacred and the profane in news coverage. There's also the momentous and the mundane. I've talked about maybe one New York murder uh, on this show in the last six months, and it was about a guy who killed a Chinese food delivery man because of discrepancies over duck sauce. Another classic example of mundane plus murder equals newsworthy. What's more mundane than something about food, a complaint about food, the kind of things that we all put in our system, a great leveler, and what's an even bigger leveler than that? What comes out of our system after the food is put in? Donald Trump perhaps the most talked about person in the history of the world. Now, I know Muhammad and Christ had a head start, but just in any single week of the Trump presidency, there were probably more mentions of Trump on the lips of all the citizens of the world than there were of Christ, or maybe not Muhammad. He gets mentioned in a lot of prayers. But this guy is going to be talked about, and toilets are hard to ignore. So you add Trump and a toilet, and you get this. People are going to make all kinds of jokes about toilets and so forth. It would still be a story if it was a fireplace. And the point is about the destruction of records, which are supposed to be preserved under the Presidential Records Act, which is a, a Watergate era uh, creation. But I'm not getting into it. I just got into it about why I'm not getting into it. I will say these are archival irregularities, which aren't good. Not the most irregular thing, even about archiving in the Trump 
presidency and the fact that he wasn't so good about destroying something the historical record should keep. Eh, kind of troubling. He also did look into the camera and break laws regularly. So I don't think the cover up is what's going to undo Donald Trump. I do think we get great joy and great pleasure in thinking about Trump and thinking about toilets, though not necessarily about thinking of Trump on the toilet. And therefore, I will not make you think about that. On the show today, ah, we return to the presidency of Joe Biden, a week when he wasn't doing much but recuperating and yet gets a lot of credit for his accomplishments. But first, we talk about the remarkable yet short life of a man who many still call to this day the greatest athlete of all time. He is the subject of Pulitzer Prize winning biographer David Marinus's new book, Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe. David Marinus up next. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. In 1950, the Associated Press declared the greatest athlete of the half century. The vote wasn't close, nor should it have been. Jim Thorpe was designated the greatest. His accomplishments in the world of track and field put him on the map and at the forefront of the world's attention as a decathlete and pentathlete in 1912. He was the most electrifying football player of his era. He actually was the first commissioner of the NFL, which I didn't know until I read the book I'll be talking about. And he was quite an excellent baseball player. A short life a remarkable one, and one that tells us a lot about the myths we make as Americans. That is the subject of David Marinus's new book, Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe. David, welcome back to The Gist. Hey, Mike. Great to be with you. So I know you're drawn to icons. Lombardi, Clinton, you even came on to talk about your town, the uh, iconic Detroit Was it just that Jim Thorpe was this figure who loomed large yet was always maybe slightly out of reach in terms of what was the myth and who was the man? Well, I am fascinated by looking at uh, myth and reality. But in the case of the the, uh, sports biographies that I've written, I'm always looking for something more. So with Lombardi, it was both, you know, this great leader and uh, winner of 
championships, but also about the mythology of competition and success in American life and what it takes and what it costs. With Clemente, it was, you know, so many athletes are called heroes and most of them aren't even close. And Clemente was in many ways. And it was also a chance to write about the Latin experience in mainland United States through baseball. Um, so Thorpe, I saw, yes, the myth of this uh, colossal, colossus of an athlete, um, but also a chance to write about the Native American experience through his life. And so I think in all of my books, I'm looking for two things. One is a dramatic arc to the story. And secondly, something that can illuminate American history and sociology. And Thorpe offered both of those things for me. And Thorpe didn't just happen to be a Native American, although the word you used throughout the book, because that was the word used at the time, is Indian. So we'll use that word in this conversation. He went to the Carlisle Indian School. He was a member of the uh, Sac and Fox by a specific tribe. But like I say, this was more than an identity. This really was who he was, and it made him seem exotic to white Americans, but it also, I think, very much informed not just his athletic prowess, but how he looked at the world. How familiar were you with uh, the subculture or the culture of the American Indian before you got into this project? Um, not that familiar, honestly. I mean, I thought I was, um, but I, you know, for all of my books, to the extent that it's possible, I try to say I know nothing. You know, don't go in with any uh, preconceptions. And so I really wanted to learn from the inside out what it would have been like to have been an Indian, Native American, indigenous person, whatever you want to use. And by the way, you know, the, the museum in Washington is called the National Museum of the American Indian. The most uh, uh, progressive radical movement was the American Indian uh, movement. So, so, you know, Indian is, is also um, well used. Um, by a lot of people. But in any case, uh, despite the terminology, um, I, I purposely spent the first uh, month of my research just talking to Native American activists, Indian activists, and, and, and really wanted to see, first of all, whether I was the right person to do this story because I really wanted to approach it from the uh, perspective of Thorpe being Indian an Indian. And, um, you know, the, it seemed like they were all eager for me to do it and approach it and, and to learn from them. And so that's what I did. But um, Thorpe's life just fit perfectly into an examination of the Native American experience because he was born the year of the Dawes Act, you know, which was an act that really tried to take away land from, from Indians, uh, you know, after uh, decades of, of genocide. Um, this was another example of that. And in 1887, that's the year he was born. And then he was sent to Carlisle Indian Industrial School, which was the flagship school of the entire Indian boarding process, which we can talk about at length. But, but you know, that, that's at the center of my book, sort of that attempt um, to take the Indianness out of Indians. Yeah, and he was a descendant of uh, the Chief Blackhawk. Uh, and in fact, he would tell his mother and his relatives that, you know, he very much felt Blackhawk's um, influence running through his veins. Blackhawk was actually not a chief. Oh, really? <laughs> I thought he was a chief too, but in studying him, I realized he was never the chief. Uh, it was Chief Keokuk, um, and Blackhawk split away from that. Um, but yes, 
he was from the same clan of the Sacken Fox, the Thunder Clan. His grandmother on his father's side, Natenequa, was probably a descendant of Blackhawks, a, a, a niece, a great niece. And his mother often told Jim that he was um, the reincarnation of Blackhawk. And he felt that um, in, to some sense his entire life. So he did make it to the Carlisle Indian School after going to, I think, the Haskell School in uh, Kansas. You mentioned the word flagship, but I think there are probably other words that could attach themselves to Carlisle. What would a student or an athlete of that time have encountered at Carlisle? Well, Carlisle um, started in 1879 um, by a colonel from the U.S. Army, uh, Richard Henry Pratt. And his motto was, kill the Indian, save the man. Is that some version of love the sin or hate the sin? Basically, what it meant was um, drain the Indian of their religion, their culture, their heritage, their language, um, their hair, cut their hair, dress them in U.S. cavalry uniforms, and try to make them white. That's what it meant. And the interesting thing about that, when you look at it, is that Pratt and the others who supported that concept thought they were doing good. They thought they were being progressive, that this was the only way to help Indians survive, that otherwise they would they would all be killed um, or just um, be lost in American society. And they wanted them to be integrated into that society. So it started with what, from the perspective of the people who launched it, were good motives. But often, you know, the unintended consequences of that are, are quite different. And so it was a crude, cruel place uh, in many ways. Um, a lot of the first uh, Indians who were sent there, the Lakota Sioux, um, thought they were going there to die. They were 10, 11 years old. They were ripped away from their families. That was often the case. One of Jim Thorpe's great teammates in track and field, Louis Tawanama, was a Hopi who was sent there as a prisoner of war. Um, the Hopi were, were reluctant to be um, integrated into white society to go to school or anything um, with with whites. And so they actually captured some of the young Hopi and sent them to Carlisle. So that was that was that what that place was like. Um, it's a little more complicated than that in the sense that that many of the students who went to Carlisle ended up being leaders of Indian movements in one way or another. So it was intended to be for the betterment of Indians. It had many awful effects and then some side effects that actually led to, to uh, some Indians becoming leaders. Um, so it was complicated in that sense. And it also, of course, to get around to Jim Thorpe, had one of the great football teams of that era. How much did the absorption of these Indians into white culture, how much did that play out in the sports? Well, I would say that, um, that football in particular was considered by the powers that be a central way of acculturation, of assimilation. Um, football in that era was largely the, um, the province of East Coast old boys. You know, Harvard, Penn, Yale, Army. Those were the, the big teams of that era of, you know, the early 1900s through 1914 or so. And so for the Carlisle Indian Industrial School to play those teams, was another form of acculturation. And that's why it was so, along with the fact that they were exotic, 
They drew large gates at all of these. You know, they mostly were on the road all the time. They were a traveling show. They brought in a lot of money, and the school, like the government, run school like that money as well. Yeah, and it would seem that they were many of the players were raised in environments back in their homes where they would run long distances and do physical labor and toughness was a necessity of their lives. So these were all things that would lend themselves to being good at football. But also they had a great coach who is uh, certainly comes across as an uh, ambivalent, a figure of ambivalence in the book. But Pop Warner, a name we all know because he lends his name to youth football in the United States. He was the coach there. And as you made clear to me, which I didn't realize, he really was a genius coach for all of his other flaws, ethical and otherwise. When it came to innovation, you couldn't beat Pop Warner. No, I agree with that. And, you know, in some sense, he's the villain of the book. Um, but he is a great coach. And, you know, he so many of the, the parts of football that we know today um, were essentially established by Pop Warner. He didn't invent the forward pass, but he was one of the first to really develop it. The double wing and, and so many of the different offensive formations um, were Pop Warner's inventions. He was also, um, you know, a tinkerer. He developed the cleats uh, for football. A lot of different innovations and inventions came from Pop Warner. And yet, um, as we'll get to in the moments of Jim's crisis, he was cowardly. Yes. And I didn't realize until I read the book that Thorpe didn't come in as a superstar who got, you know, half the carries from his freshman year. First of all, the idea of freshman year wouldn't really apply. You could tell me how many years the school went to. But I guess it's just a testimony to how good the team really was that Jim Thorpe himself had to earn playing time. He certainly did. I mean, they had terrific teams before Thorpe. Um it sort of declined after Thorpe, and, and the two years when he was gone playing baseball, they suffered some. But before that, um, they, had, they had teams that were among the best on the East Coast. And, and in his first year of play in 1907, um, he was mostly on the bench, at least for the first six games until the starting left halfback got injured, and then he got his chance and sort of switched off with that fellow the rest of that year and then just took off after that and was... Um, you know, the best player in college sports. And what about track and field where he would earn his Olympic medals? How quickly did he show himself to be adept at that? Uh, that first uh, spring of 1907, you know, there's that sort of mythological, uh, somewhat apocryphal, but, but borderline true story of him walking by the high jump pit in his overalls. You know, he wasn't on the track team. And they had the the pole at six feet, and and Jim Thorpe, in, you know, in his work clothes, just jumped over it, and and Pop Warner heard about that and recruited him for the track team. Some variation of that is probably true, um, but you know, from then on, he was he was um, he showed so many different talents in track and field. He he could win in the hurdles, in the shot put, in the broad jump, and in the high jump, um, and although. For the most part, um, even today, a lot of a lot of meets don't have the decathlon in it until you get to the to the you know the Olympics and some of the real major meets. Um, he showed that all around ability that led him towards the Olympics. And there were meets where he and Louis Tawanima, who was a great long distance runner, could beat an entire team all by themselves. You know, in terms of points, because they were in so many different events. 
So from the Carlisle Indian School comes the core of the U.S. athletics or track and field team for the 1912 Olympics. Thorpe, Tawanama, and Pop Warner go to Stockholm. Were they expected to win? What was the buzz around them going in? You know, it was a mixed bag. Some people thought that there was another decathlete from the U.S. who was better, um, but that was quickly, you know, Thorpe immediately in the pentathlon, which was an early event, just wiped out the field. The book runs 600 pages. You detail his professional football career. You've convinced me he was by far the best punter of his era, probably the most electric halfback. I don't know what the statistics would say, and it's hard to compare across eras. A very fine baseball player who probably was thwarted in his progress by the manager of the New York Giants, John McGraw. And you know, truly a truly remarkable athlete. And even if there was myth around his athleticism, if we could see the tape to this day, we'd probably stare in a mouth gaped uh, wonder. Is that about right? I think so. Absolutely. And again, you know, who's the greatest athlete in, in American history? I think those arguments are sort of foolish. I mean, because everything is generational. Everything is different for every generation the equipment, the diet, the training, all of that is so different, um, you know, from one generation to the next, that you can't really authentically compare them in any way that's meaningful. But, but of his era, Jim Thorpe was so far and away the best athlete, that I think he would he would transfer to any other era as well. Right. And I looked through the list in preparation for this interview of ESPN or the AP or other organizations putting together a list of who was the greatest athlete of all time or who was the greatest American athlete. And of course, you know, because we love basketball, Michael Jordan would be on that list. How could you say it's not? Jesse Owens would appear on a lot of lists. But the argument for Jim Thorpe, you're right, we can't compare. But sometimes an argument is so strong, it just blows comparisons out of the water. Um, Let's take, for example, so many different sports. That's one. They call the winner of the 100-meter dash the world's fastest man and the winner of the decathlon the world's greatest athlete, right? He crushed that event. He crushed other professional sports. He was, at his in his days, so much better than anyone else. And there's no one else on the list who had that sort of multi-sport prowess that wasn't just promise. I mean, Bo Jackson did a couple things for a couple years before he got hurt, but no one touches Jim Thorpe in terms of just the sheer eclecticism of his achievements. I think you're, I think that's right. I agree with it. I also think that Bo Jackson was phenomenal and probably could have been a decathlete himself. I greatly admire Bo Jackson as probably the Jim Thorpe of his era, but you're right. He, he suffered injuries that, that that's, you know, curtailed both his baseball and football careers. The name of the book is Path Lit by Lightning. I will tell you that is also the name of the subject of the book, Jim Thorpe, in his own tongue. The book is The Life of Jim Thorpe. And the author is David Marinus. David, thanks again. Hey, my pleasure, Mike. I really love talking with you.
I'm Dr. Megan Sachs. And I'm Dr. Amy Sloshberg. And we're the host of the podcast Campus Killings. Our show covers some of the most sinister crimes to take place on or around school campuses. Or the cases we discuss have a school-connected theme. And with the new school year comes an all-new second season of Campus Killings, which will debut on September 16th, 2023. But if you want to listen to Campus Killings now, you can binge all the episodes from season one. Available everywhere you listen to podcasts. And now the spiel. What a week for Joe Biden. Chuck Todd noted it. This comes at the end of what may have been Joe Biden's best week as president. The killing of al-Qaeda's leader, uh, Ayman al-Zawari. The abortion vote in Kansas. A huge jobs report on Friday. Falling gas prices. And the all-night vote on the Democrats' climate, energy, and health care bill looks like it's going to go through. It did go through. George Stephanopoulos noted it as well. The president has had a pretty remarkable both legislative and executive action winning streak over the last several weeks. Some of those accomplishments, killing al-Zawahiri, probably would have happened to whoever the president was. Bin Laden killed on Obama's watch. Al-Baghdadi killed on Trump's. Zawahiri, Biden, maybe Trump would have gone in heavy. The Biden administration opted for the Ginsu of missiles, which sliced and diced, but left all but the balcony intact. So what of this big legislative win for the president? It was certainly a big bill. It absolutely advanced his vision. It's totally a great talking point going into the midterms. So it bears examining how Biden pulled it off. The Inflation Reduction Act, okay, that's the title, but the big tax, environment, medication, healthcare bill. How'd he do it? What were his methods to cajole or muscle this huge bill into law? Okay, I got the scheme here. Take notes, pay attention to the wending complexities and the baffling intricacies. Here we go. A different guy changed his mind. That's it. That's what happened. The different guy, Joe Manchin, changed his mind and therefore Biden had a masterful legislative week. Now to be fair, the other guy, Joe Manchin, is also named Joe, is also a Democratic politician, and, okay, now I'm really going to blow your mind, is also from a state that borders Maryland. But Joe Biden's getting credit for Joe Manchin changing his mind. I don't know. It's a little like the mayor of Hershey, Pennsylvania, getting credit for cultivating that great chocolate smell in the air. Now, if it seems like I'm being churlish or dismissive, I'm not. I'm really not. What I'm being is consistent. Because if Joe Biden is merely experiencing refracted Joe glory, what I'm really making the case for is that this guy never deserved the blame. Joe Biden didn't. I know it's a classic question to put to a president, usually by reporters who know the answer and by presidents who know they know the answer and know what answer they're going to give. But the little pas de deux works out like this. If you're the leader, why isn't your agenda being passed? And the answer, dutifully and accurately cited by every president since LBJ is, because I don't control the Senate. I don't control the House either, but the Senate is even a higher threshold. Still, it is asked and answered. Mitch has been very clear. (laughs) He'd do anything to prevent Biden from being a success. And answered and asked here by Mary Bruce of ABC. You mentioned your Republican colleagues, but right now your top two legislative priorities, your social spending package and voting rights legislation are stalled, blocked by your own party after months of negotiation. You are only guaranteed control of Washington for one more year before the midterms. Do you need to be more realistic and scale down these priorities in order to get something passed? Okay, that was a little bit of a variation. Can't blame the Republicans for this one. But the answer is still, I don't 
control the Senate. I don't even control all 50 senators with a D, even though I will acknowledge I have a D. And not all the Ds think the same way. You people asking the questions, you're political reporters, right? I just figured you knew this. Anyway, maybe you were unaware of the dynamic. I'm happy to fill you in. Turns out that Kirsten Cinema, Joe Manchin, they do their own thing. They go their own way, and there's nothing I as the president can do about it. Still, it has to be asked of the president and also the vice president. We found this one example of Kamala Harris being interviewed by Telemundo, where I think maybe the reporter didn't actually know the executive doesn't control the Senate. The problem is Congress is not acting. The problem is that we have members of Congress, in particular, but, but, of, but Congress and, the and the Senate are Democrats. In, in the majority are Democrats, right? No, 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 no. <coughs> but however, no, it's not like it's purely Democrats. In the Senate, it's 50-50, mm-hmm. 50 Democrats, 50 Republicans. And so the way that our democracy works is you need a majority. And sometimes you need, you know, in the Senate, sometimes you need 60 in, of the 100 to actually act on certain kinds of um initiatives and pieces of legislation. And even when you squeak by with only 50 votes, it obviously gives great power and leverage to those within the caucus willing to dissent. Everyone understands this, except when it comes time to ask tough-seeming questions about the lack of accomplishments. And then it's all, wow, wonder how that happened. Sir, you were the conductor on a train where, yes, 50 separate people have access to the brakes, But I ask you, why is the train not getting to the station? Also, let me remind you, you are the conductor. Here's another example of willfully ignoring a dynamic that everyone understands. It's a little detailed, bear with me. There was one item in the big bill that got stripped out. And everyone understands Kirsten Sinema is willing to buck her own party over this. It was a tax item called the carried interest loophole, or if you don't want to say loophole and be biased, you just call it the carried interest provision. Here, though, was the Wall Street Journal editorializing today, quote, that doesn't let Democrats off the hook for their astounding hypocrisy. When out of power, they rail against Republicans for not closing what they call the carried interest loophole, but when in power, they never get around to changing it. No, there is no hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is when you say one thing, then do the other. The Democrats say they want to change it. All of the Senate Democrats say this except one, and all of the Democrats in the Senate do want to change it. They're not saying one thing and doing another, and neither is Kirsten Sinema. She's not saying she's against the carried interest loophole. She's not against the carried interest loophole. She's not being a hypocrite. She's just in favor of carried credit, as is the Wall Street Journal editorial board, who, by the way, are also not hypocrites. No one's a hypocrite. I think one group's right. I think one group's wrong. The group that's wrong is the Wall Street Journal editorial board and cinema. But we all understand every aspect to these dynamics. Do we not? I think we do. There is no point to be made other than the obvious one that Democrats should have elected 51 of themselves or even 61 senators to overcome filibuster thresholds. Not that easy. Only 33 or 34 up at a time. And everyone understands this. What do the Democrats have? What they have is a big new bill. What they don't have is some great story about how Joe Biden brought forth that big new bill at the last hour. Turns out Joe Biden didn't have a remote control that operated Joe Manchin's voting finger, but he never did. He also wasn't the cause for Joe Manchin opposing it before he supported it. We all understand this, right? Can we all agree that we all understand this? And if we didn't before, I hope we do now. 
And that's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by assistant producer Corey Warren, senior producer Joel Patterson. We had help today from guest producer Ian Scotto. Michelle Pesca is part of the permanent collection of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeepero, Dupro, and thanks for listening.